Hello aliens and welcome back to Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I am your host, John Allen, also known as Spooky Uncle John. With me, as always, is my co-host and producer... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. And our Technomage Ren. A.K.A. Pyre Lily. Yay! So, Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. You can find us on all social medias, including Instagram, TikTok, Clapper, and Twitter by, by looking for it at the Area 51H. And you can search for us on Facebook by searching for Area 51 and a Half. Well, Nick, as you know, not that long ago, it was the Oscars. And you know what? I have to say, I know that a lot of people don't watch these award shows because they say that they're dull and they say that they're they're whatever. They don't really care. They're not that invested because they haven't seen the movies. That's probably true. But this has to have been one of the more emotional Oscars that I've ever seen. Yeah. Certainly because of the Asian representation, which we haven't seen a whole lot of. Mm -hmm. But the fact, like, I mean, Michelle Yeoh, she wins Best Actress, and it's the first time that an Asian actress has won that category. And yeah, it's 2023. Yeah. Oscars are 95 years old. And this is the first time that that uh, an Asian woman wins Best Actress. Well, and that, that there's a whole conversation in that, but Michelle, like, finally seeing Michelle Yeoh wins, win an Oscar, that's great. Like, Mich Michelle Yeoh's always been... Fantastic. I remember when she kind of first came on the scene in North America with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. And she's um, done so much. She's actually wound up playing one of my favorite characters in Star Trek, George, well, the mirror version of Giorgio Philippa uh, in Discovery. But she's fantastic, and I'm glad she won. <laughs> Listen, let's, let's, let's just talk about that. We're only going to talk about the top categories. So Brendan Fraser wins for the whale. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's nice to see Brendan Fraser back. Yes. But not only that, let's just pause for a moment because Ki Hui Kwan wins Best Supporting Actor. This, yeah. of course, for Everything Everywhere All at Once, which just swept the top categories. So let's just pause for a moment. Because two actors from Encino Man in the same year... Win Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. I think that's glorious. The big one for me, though, as a longtime fan of hers and a horror fan, is Jamie Lee Curtis winning Best Supporting Actress. That was a long time coming. Just a nomination. She's never been nominated before. But this brings me to the one sort of sad part for me about the Oscars. The stank eye from Angela Bassett. Yeah. Who didn't win. Yeah. I have lost a little bit of respect for that queen. I'll tell you why. The great, great character actress, Thelma Ritter, mm -hmm. has a dubious record when it comes to the Oscars. She has been nominated for six Best Supporting Actress awards. Not a single win. Michelle Williams has been nominated more times than Angela Bassett. Not a single win, including yeah. 2023. Peter O'Toole never won an Oscar. Angela Bassett, you are not entitled to win. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. We've, we've seen reactions throughout the years from different people. 
a lot of people have that level of professionalism where they don't get the Oscar, but they still stand up and clap. But we've seen it from people in That's the past. That's respect. Yeah. That's respect. Everybody in that category did an award-winning performance. Yeah. Everyone. But there's only going to be one winner unless it's a tie. I can tell you why Jamie Lee Curtis won over you, Angela Bassett. You alluded to, to in one of our previous podcasts, Nick. Remember how you talked to me and you said, when we were talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and you said, you told I told you that sometimes they get an Oscar nomination for an acting moment. Yes. And you had said that Angela Bassett deserved a nomination for those acting moments yes. in Wakanda Forever. Do not disagree. But it's a moment compared to everything everywhere all at once where Jamie Lee Curtis isn't just a moment. She's in the entire movie throughout. Her first nomination. She is Hollywood royalty. Her mother has been nominated. The great Janet Lee didn't win. Her father, Tony Curtis, has been nominated. Didn't win. She deserved the nomination. She deserved the win. She has done this not being a Nepo baby, because she is not a Nepo baby anymore. I mean, yes, nepotism gets you in the door, but your talent makes you stay. Well, and that's the thing is, Jamie Lee Curtis is probably one of the most talented actresses of this generation, of the past generation. She deserves an Oscar just as much as Angela Bassett deserves an Oscar. She broke free from the mold that she was put in. Yeah. The horror then, final girl mold, the fun kind of action films and Christmas with the cranks and all that. This shows that she has a great deal of range. Yeah. It, it kind of hurts me a little bit. Because I love both of those actresses. Yeah. It wouldn't have hurt Angela Bassett to be gracious and applaud. And to be fair, Angela Bassett's going to get another chance. She's fantastic. Well, but they're also women of a certain age. And roles do not come that much mm. anymore for women of a certain age. So she might not get another chance. But so what? Peter O'Toole certainly didn't have another chance. Yeah. Thelma Ritter certainly doesn't have another chance. Yeah. Six nominations. Yeah. Not a single win. Anyway, um, again, the Oscars were emotional. We had a man with Down syndrome win an Oscar for, uh, I think it was a documentary. All he wanted was for everybody to sing happy birthday to him. And all everybody sang happy birthday because it was <laughs> it was his birthday on the Oscars. That's awesome. I'm sorry I don't know his name because I just thought that the the, the guys brought him up there. And I, I didn't think, I thought maybe he was the subject of the documentary. I didn't realize that he had a hand in producing this documentary. So that was a great time. And of course, God bless her, Elizabeth Banks bringing out cocaine bear. <laughs> yeah. That was hysterical. That was hysterical. And and she knew the timing to do because she's like talking to this person dressed in the bear going, are you trying to score off Sigourney Weaver? Don't, don't bring legend Sigourney Weaver into this. This is... <laughs> you wait, wait for the after party like everybody else. <laughs> And it was just, I thought she actually stole the show from Jimmy Kimmel a little bit there because it was hilarious. That bit was hilarious. Which brings us to her movie, Cocaine Bear, which we yeah. and I both seen. Taking the world by storm. Oh. Your thoughts? Well, okay. So for the first time in a while, you actually, you and I actually didn't watch this movie together. 
Um, you saw it in theater. I picked it up off of Amazon this oh, week. Oh, but I, I want to make... Aliens, I made my dream come true. I finally saw a movie in theater where I was the only person in the audience. My dream has come true. And it was freaking Cocaine Bear. <laughs> I'm going to be very quick with my thoughts. I did not finish the movie because I just was not that interested. Oh, I'm sorry. I was not that into it. The movie was, it fell flat for me. Um, up until about the point of the ambulance scene, because that was, that was a, that was wild. But the rest of the movie that I saw, just, I wasn't digging it. Part of the issue for me was I found the characters to be excessively annoying. Not to the point that I want to see them dead. I just wanted to, I just wanted them off my screen. Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to challenge you to watch it again. Though. I, I'll give it another chance. The reason I want you to watch it again is because this should be up your alley. I have a feeling you just weren't in the mood. The other problem I had with it was the bear is just this CGI lump that doesn't have any personality. They could have done anything they wanted with that bear. Because, yeah, it's based on a true story, but they could have taken all sorts of liberties with this, which they did to an extent, Yeah, obviously. but, you know, like, listen, Nick, honestly, Gentle Ben is dead. And um, Winnie the Pooh is doing horror movies now. So, like, they, they really didn't have much choice but to CGI a bear. They could have done... A puppet of some kind. Just, just <laughs> they, they, they don't do puppets anymore. You know, you know who's looking to work, looking for work? The 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 bear from the Muppets. He's clearly looking for work. <laughs> Fozzie. No, no, the other one, the other, the more realistic. But what's, yeah, bear the, what's bear in the big blue house done lately? I don't know. But but here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is not. It's not a big budget movie. We know no. that. But. It is a fun movie. I'm going to challenge you. We're going to watch it again because I just think you were not in the right mood because okay. there were scenes in that, like, is, uh, and I don't want to do a spoiler alert, so we're not going to get into depth with it, but there were scenes like the ambulance scene and anytime the, the, the bear, like, was just getting on the cocaine, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it's right there. Cocaine bear. That's all I need. I wasn't, I checked my brain at the door. I wasn't expecting it to be glorious. I wasn't expecting it to be like, hey, best picture. I was just expecting it to be popcorn, silly, fun, and it was. The biggest laugh I got was the male EMT. <laughs> uh, that's that's a guy I follow on TikTok. Right. He's not. He, this is his first movie. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. he's, he's normally a stand-up comedian. And it's Ray Liotta's last movie, sadly yeah. enough. But, but I mean, like, I, I wasn't sure who was more strung out on cocaine, Ray Liotta or the bear. I mean, just the makeup that they did on him or. Uh, but anyway, anyway, the other movie that we saw, Scream 6. Now we will issue our spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right. Scream 6, which we did watch together. Yeah. So before we get because into we, it, we we need to be together for the trauma that is the, watching a for the emotional movie. support. Okay, one thing we'll say. One thing I'll say, it was the best scream sequel so far. But that's not saying much because it still kind of sucked. Well, since two, I mean, two was actually well. This good. was this was scream two all over again. I know it's it, basically. I mean, one and two are the best scream movies. After that, it just becomes. Uh, it just becomes gimmick and stunt casting. It was miles ahead of Scream 5. And 4. And 4. I mean, and then there's 3, which I the less we talk about, the better. Um, it had Lance Henriksen in it. had uh, Carrie Fisher in it. I mean, that's what I mean, stunt casting. Lots of things have Lance Hen Henriksen in them, John. 
I mean, I love Lance Hendrickson, but that doesn't good. mean quality. They're usually good. Yeah. Um, okay. Look, he, so here's the big problem with the Scream movies, right? They rely on the gimmick and the Scooby-Doo ending. And they also rely on, like, okay, in the past movies, the, the ghost face killer typically, typically can take a beating and keep going. But man, at this point, with this cast, I am pretty sure the Scream movies take place in the Marvel Universe. Because you can stab someone 20 times oh and they gosh. can keep going. The mortal wounds that these people got were ridiculous. The one, the one chick gets a, a stomach, a stabbing in the stomach, and she's like, nah, I'm fine, I'm just going to sit here for a while, and doesn't die. Jen Ortega gets stabbed in the back and the stomach, and she doesn't go off in an ambulance. Boyfriend, boyfriend winds up a pincushion. He's fine. He's good. <laughs> Good to go. Well, like, that was with the other thing. Like, how many people actually died in this? Two? Um, they, they four. Took, they well, took not, inclu- not including the killers, four people died, I believe. The two <laughs> the two yokels at the start, uh, Samara Weaving and the therapist. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, f- uh, five. Uh, yeah. The, uh, Ava. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the core four. Uh, oh, my God. I, I just... Here's the thing. It's not like they didn't do... Th- that opening, I thought, was great. Oh, yeah. The opening for was this w- film... The, yeah was fantastic. They set up a really, really good film with that opening. Unfortunately, a really, really good film did not follow. There was a point when I, I said to you that the certain character who says a certain line, and I turned to Nick and I said, well, there's the killer, because the line was so obvious. Yeah. It was so obvious. And I know that they were trying to be sneaky, but I'm just like, no, I figured this out. I mean, you figured out that there was more than one ghost face, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to be clever. They're not clever. And to me, I, I guess because I'm older and I started with the original Scream series, I, I was, oh, that whole scene with Gail Weathers, I was so pissed off. I'm going, you better not. You better not. Don't you dare. Don't you dare kill her. Don't you dare. So, you know, but I mean. They'll kill her in the next one. I want to see. I, I want to see those legacy characters. I hate that term, but I want to see those legacy characters because that to me is scream. Oh, uh, how do we get Neff Campbell out of this? Uh, yeah, no, I contacted Sydney. She's not coming to New York. She's gonna run off to her safe place with her family. I was like, yeah. So you screwed over Neff Campbell for this movie. Good for you. Yep. Gail's not in it a whole hell of a lot. So why do you even bother? And honestly, I don't. As much as Jenna Ortega is the it girl right now. Mm-hmm. I don't care about her character in Scream. Do not care what? about her older sister char- character Who, in Scream. I think char- I think it's silly the fact that she's Billy Loomis's daughter and it's like yeah. I keep seeing Billy Loomis in reflections and I'm fighting my my own mania. And eventually, it's like, what are you going to become Ghostface eventually? A, a poorly CGI'd Ski Ulrich, by yeah, the way. Oh, very poorly. The only character I cared about, at least at the start of the movie, was Quinn, who. Fakes her death and turns out to be one of the killers anyway. But other than that, I didn't give a crap. No, I know. And I, you know, even I, Kirby, I didn't care about. The truth of the matter is, I liked that character, Quinn. I wish that they had kept her that way. I wish they'd kept her around a little bit longer. I think she added a certain level of levity that, that the screen movies don't typically have. Yeah, like my favorite line is she's a, okay, I, I <laughs> she's a bit of a whore. <laughs> <laughs> and and she, the roommates come home and she comes out of her bedroom and 
<laughs> she they're talking and and she said, "Oh, is that Paul?" And you hear you hear Lover Boy, who we never see in the back. Who the f- is Paul? <laughs> that was brilliant. I mean, if that's the, if that's the best you have to offer in terms of the, I mean, like there was some really neat stuff that they did in here, yeah. the subway scene, all that kind of stuff. There's good movies in here, but the way you fix Scream is stop with the Scooby Doo ending, stop with the connections, stop with connecting it back to Billy Loomis and like just what I want to see in the next screen movie is Ghostface. period still do the, the voice. That's great, but we don't find out who it is. Yeah. It's not connected to them because that's what makes Jason work. That's what makes Michael Myers work. That's what makes Freddie work. That's what makes Leatherface work is that we know who that person is. They're a serial killer. Boom. End of story. We know that. How many of these killers can be around? A ton, apparently. Everybody that shops at a Halloween store is a potential killer. Now, if you love these movies, I get it. I kind of get it. You grew up on them. Maybe you've got some emotional attachment to it the way that I do with Halloween. We're not trying to take that away from you. I'm just saying that, honestly, this is not the best franchise at all. So... And that, that's kind of the thing, right? Like I And it could be. I was a kid when the first Scream movie came out, and I, I adored it. And I liked Scream 2 and 3 a lot when I was a teenager. And then I got older and got some taste and realized that Scream 3 was really bad. Um, <laughs> but honestly, yeah, this is one of the better sequels. It's still not the greatest movie of all time, but it was there were enjoyable parts in it. I really did dig the subway scene. They did, they, because of where they were, because they were in New York, they were able to do some really different things yeah. in the film. That scene. The with, scene in the store. The scene in the store. The scene with Ava going across the ladder. Yeah. Man, that had me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. So for all that, I give this movie a pass. And the acting's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I give the movie a passing grade, five, uh, five and a half out of 10. Yeah. I like that. But. And with that, it is time for Nick's Roundup. Right, so on this week's roundup, we're going to talk a little bit about the new Ninja Turtles movie that's coming out, Ninja Turtles uh, Mutant Mayhem, which is being done by Seth Rogen of all people, which I'm I'm digging. Animated or live action? Animated, and right. I'm really really digging the look of the animation. Now they've 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 cast uh, four young boys. Oh my god, they've actually cast teenagers to play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in this movie about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Calabunga. Yeah. But the, what they've done is they've anchored the rest of the cast with some more well-known names. So you got John Cena, you got Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen's in there doing a, uh, doing a voice. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is Baxter Stockman. And Jackie Chan is Splinter, which I think oh, is nice. a really neat little piece of casting. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, uh, as a huge Ninja Turtles fan, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'll watch Anthony Ninja Turtles. I'll at least give it a chance. If I like it, I like it. If I don't, eh, I'm sure somebody else will. It's all good. <laughs> now, as far now, go, moving on to another franchise, Star Wars. So, upcoming Star Wars movies, there was going to be a Kevin Feige Star Wars movie and a Patty Jenkins Star Wars movie. Those have both been shelved. Don't know why as of yet. There's a lot of shelving going on in the uh, yeah. in the com- comic fantasy sci-fi world here. Now, especially with Disney Plus, I'm thinking with Kevin Feige. I think my personal thoughts on that is the 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 Marvel ship needs some writing, and he might be, um, yeah, 
taking time away from Star Wars to do that. Yeah, the Mar- Marvel ship went all Poseidon Adventure at this yeah. point. Uh, Patty Jenkins, I can't say much about that. And interestingly enough, they have not shelved the Taika Waititi Star Wars movie. That's continuing, and he's apparently going to be in it as the star. But that's a whole other thing. You know, here we are again. The, the We're here once again. You've taken a property which was near and dear to my heart, those first original three trilogies, and have crapped all over them. I am so sick and tired of Star Wars. But if you go back before all the canon stuff is no longer canon, like having, like, Jade and having all the kids yeah. like that's that's some stuff I'm, that's never been covered and I, I mean obviously stuff. well they stopped it yeah and but... that's that's the thing like canon doesn't exist because it's at the whim of the writers and it changes so much yeah but that's what's the... good about the Mandalorian is that they're actually bringing things back because the people in charge of Mandalorian know what they're doing with Star Wars. Yes, yes, I agree with they're you. They're making it Star Wars. Yes, and it's they're taking a character that and making that the main character and then having interspersing other kind of things like Luke Skywalker coming into it. And Ahsoka and Bo-Katan. Oh, I, lo- oh, oh. I'm, I am loving Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan this season. Like, she's brilliant and I'm just glad she gets to play that character in live action. Now, Moving on to Marvel, Marvel Comics this time instead of Marvel Movies. Oh, okay. Right? So Marvel's bringing back the Ultimate Series, which I am excited for. Ultimate Series, for those who don't know, was a series of comic books in the early 2000s to early 2010s that took place in an alternate universe to the regular Marvel to the regular Marvel universe. It's the first comic uh, iteration that introduced Nick Fury as looking like Sam Jackson it introduced Miles Morales, and it introduced a much more hard-lined kind of jerk version of the Avengers. I've I love the Ultimate series, and I'm interested in seeing where a new version would go. And just to kind of cap things off, Dead by Daylight, the movie. Now, Dead by Daylight is a video game that has you playing either as a final boy or girl, or the killer. And you have to either escape or hunt down the, the victims, right? So a movie's coming from James Wan and Bloomhouse, which I am I am okay with that. If anyone's going to adapt that, I think that's the perfect team to do it. And it'll be interesting to see which killers or killer, if they do, I would like them to do an anthology series, but it'd be interesting to see which killer or killers they choose because they have a good library of them. And of course, they also have their guest killers like Michael Myers. Bloomhouse is hit or miss with me. Um, if they're going to do this this video game turned movie, okay, you can play as Michael Myers. I want Michael Myers in there. Get like Just get a dump truck full of money to Jamie Lee Curtis and go in and redo the final showdown between Michael and Laurie because I cannot tell you and reiterate enough how much Halloween ends sucks. <laughs> oh, it's caused the ongoing trauma. No, it is. The reason is because somebody like me who was there from day one and that's the final showdown. It's like, no, I'm sorry. As much as people hated H20, that was a better showdown. I cannot reiterate this enough how much I hated the story of Corey. Yep. As a Legion main, I would love to see all four Legion members as the killer in the Dead by Daylight. I would like to see, is it the Trapper? 
Rapper. Oh. Yeah, he's cool. He's so cool. And once again, I have no idea what these two millennials are talking about. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get you caught up on the game. You'll be fine. Nick, thanks for that great roundup. Today, folks, we are talking about fantasy. Yeah. Specifically fantasy movies of the 1980s because that's when it reached its zenith, its peak, if you will. Yeah, I and that's I grew up on films like that. I mean, obviously you that was, you know, you we were We all teenager. grew up yeah. on films like that. I remember watching films like Labyrinth, like Beastmaster, um things like that when I was a small child mm-hmm. still in Scotland and just digging all of it. And I was watching them when they first came out. But before we get into the meat of it, let's look at where I think things started kicking off. Now, Interestingly enough, I wanted to find out what the first fantasy movie was. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, going back to the history of cinema to the very first part. So it's probably a silent movie, probably a short silent movie. It's not actually that that, uh, French one with the rocket going to the moon. It's actually not that one. I, I, I can't think of the guy's name that did that off the top of my head. But it's called The Cabbage Leaf. The cabbage leaf. And it's a, yeah, and it's that whole mythos of a fairy finding babies in the cabbage patch. Oh, okay. So it's magical and it's fantasy and all that kind of stuff. I I, I don't know if I can pronounce the, the, the French director's name, Mew, or something like that. Uh, but, you know, everybody has seen that image of the rocket going and hitting yeah. the moon in the, the eye. And, you know, those were the first sort of sci-fi fantasy movies, right, mm-hmm. from the silent era. But I think things really took off after J.R.R. Tolkien wrote um, the Lord of the Rings series. Yeah. And then Dungeons and Dragons became this huge game. And from there, that's when we really start seeing a lot of this fantasy. Well, that's when you start seeing, yeah, that's when you start seeing the fantasy films, fantasy video games like Dragon's Lair, Legend of Zelda, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, for me, I mean, I can't pinpoint when I first saw a fantasy film. It's been ages and ages ago, you know? But like, fantasy film of the 80s are important to me because one, I grew up on them, but they also. Um, had a huge influence on film going forward as well. I don't think we would have had the the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films if we didn't have films like Conan the Barbarian, if we didn't have The Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, stuff like that. Yeah, because prior to that, uh, you mentioned about the um, Peter Jackson ones. We only had the Ralph Bakshi 1978, yeah. I think, uh, Lord of the Rings, which was just a portion of it. And then... Later on, they did uh, The Hobbit, which for some reason had musical orcs. But let's talk about some of our favorite ones. You mentioned a couple. You mentioned, uh, let's talk about the Jim Henson ones first. Right. So let's talk about Labyrinth. Right. So Labyrinth is, I love Labyrinth. How can you not love Labyrinth? David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, they knock it out of the park. Surrounded by basically Muppets on crack. Yes. Okay. So Hoggle, I love Hoggle. He's great. And it's it's such a nice little arc for him in that movie because he he's he is the sidekick and he is kind of a hero as well because he's playing this complete jerk yeah. at the start of it and then he realizes no he he does yeah. like Sarah and he does want to help her and he does want her to succeed and yeah. he, you see him go from not liking her at all to kind of leading her on as part of the Goblin King's ruse yeah. to being there for her. Yeah, and this is a case where, unlike, unlike the the Hobbit with the specifically where there's a whip, there's a way, the singing orcs, 
the music in this works because it, it becomes a musical because you have David Bowie in it. Mm-hmm. But you have like two, at least two really great songs. Yes. Dance, Magic, Dance and uh, When the World Falls Away. I don't think that's the title, but, you know, where they're in the fantasy ball and dancing at the masquerade. It's just gorgeous to look at because the production designs are either they were done by, I think they were actually done by both the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth by fantasy artist Brian Fruit. And another thing to mention with this movie is that one of the staples of 80s fantasy films is there is something in there that is typically total nightmare fuel. Yeah. And for me, for this film, I know, it, and the, the neat thing about Labyrinth is that it does differ from person to person, but for me, it's the the, mu- the, the puppets whose heads roll off. We could take their oh. heads off. <laughs> that is frightening. Now, other people I've talked to, it's the, the hands, the helping mm. hands. Um, and just, but it's, it's really, really lovely. It's a lovely film. I love David Bowie in it. I love David Bowie, but it's his, his work in it is fantastic. It's iconic. Yeah, people still dress up as, as Bowie in cosplay. Yeah, from, I, was, from um, I saw a David Bowie action figure where he's done up like Jareth. Yeah. It's and and honestly like uh, Bowie was a fantastic singer, he was a fantastic artist, but he was also a fantastic actor. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine anybody else playing Jareth. I really can't. Nor would I want anyone else to no. play Jareth, you know. Like he had the stature, he had the look, and the the beautiful thing about casting Bowie in this character is the fact that he had a I don't think Bowie was the handsomest guy in the world, to be honest with you. But he does have a sex appeal, right? Yeah. And so he can play that idea of this mischievous goblin person with the magic powers, both being attractive and repellent at the same time. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing to do. And we see that because that's the whole thing with Jennifer Conley's character is that she's going on this journey from childhood to adulthood. And so to have that sexual attraction for somebody who is older and dangerous and yet trying to maintain that uh, sense of innocence is yeah. brilliant. And I was just going to point this out because right now I'm waist deep in Picard. But one of my favorite little bits of trivia of this is Gates McFadden, who plays Beverly Crusher in Star Trek, did the choreography for this film. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But yeah, that's it's a great film. I love the, the, the music. I absolutely love the uh, the the baby in the film. Yeah, grew up to do Muppet work. And really, now works for Jim Henson. Yeah. Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, it works for uh, the Jim Henson. Or, company. Yeah, yeah, like the Jim Henson Studios. Yeah, 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 yeah the studios. Yeah. Uh, and so let's go to the other Jim Henson movie, Labyrinth, or not Labyrinth, uh, Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal. We were just talking about Labyrinth. The Dark Crystal is to me probably the most perfect fantasy movie. The Dark Crystal, again, one of those films that is that has nightmare fuel in it. I adore that film. Well, the Skeksis are terrifying. Oh my god, the Skeksis. To this day, I am 100% sure that the Chamberlain Skeksi was the basis for Starscream. Just the way he talks and his his just general demeanor. But anyway, um, I, everything about that film is a visual treat. Everything looks like something plucked out of a storybook yeah it's so beautiful and so wild and the the gelflings look the 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 thing about 
the Jim Henson company, Jim Henson doing a movie like this is that his puppet work is, has always been seamless. Yeah. You, yes, we He's know the best of the best. We know they're puppets. But they don't look or feel like puppets. It's not like Thunderbirds where he's like, yeah, that's a marionette, whatever. This, These are living, breathing creatures. And Jim Hansen has always been the best at bringing this type of creature to life. Yeah, and especially when you, you look at how they move and how they interact. You know, um, they, I think it was very smart of them to sometimes actually use a person in costume yes. to, um, to do certain scenes. Like when Jim is is jumping um, away from the the crab-like creatures that are sent out to him. And you're like, how do you not love a a puppet like Agra? Like, that's everybody's old grandmother that's uh, smoking weed. You know, it's like, she's a fantastic character. So apparently a lot of the, uh, the design of the Dark Crystal Muppets came from the land of Gorch that got canceled off of Saturday Night Live. Oh, so Henson was like, "Oh, I can do like adult stuff, like more adult themes with the Muppets." Well, here you go. Here's Dark Crystal. You know, that's cool. the exact same. But it was, I think it was smart of him to do that, actually, because you know he had, the Muppets were just. I think they were just finishing their TV run, like the, the yeah, the yeah, Kermit and all that been, kind yeah. of stuff. So he he starts moving into these movies. He's got the Muppet movies, which are also fantasy. But the, for today's discussion, we're going to leave the Muppet movies out of it. Um, but, I mean, these were hits. Like, they were, like, knock them out of the park well, hits. I Everybody mean, had to see them. Everyone was talking about them. I wa- okay, so I wasn't alive when the movie came out. But I can only imagine that something like The Dark Crystal really hadn't been seen before. No, it hadn't. And to see it, something like that on the big screen, like, <laughs> this is why you need to go back to mo- movie theaters, people. Movies were meant to be seen on a big screen. It is a very different feel on a big screen than it is on a small TV screen. Even your largest TV that you can have in your home does not compare to a movie theater. It really doesn't. I want to make two points about The Dark Crystal. One, um, without The Dark Crystal, I wouldn't have had some of the stuff that I grew up on. Um, Specifically, the Ninja Turtles movies. Mm -hmm. Because it was the Jim Henson workshop that did that. And... The experience that they got from the Dark Crystal, you can you can directly see the influence on that. Yeah, on that movie. My second point is this, I, and I've made this complaint before, and yeah, it is a complaint. I don't care, but movies like the Dark Crystal are timeless. Yes, I can pick up the Dark Crystal and watch it, and it still looks great. As where, and I'm sorry to say it, everyone, if I watch the Avatar from 2009. CGI degrades so quickly over the years. It looks great when it first comes out, but it doesn't hold up. And the fact of the matter is, is that's why I prefer practical effects. Spawn. (laughs) Oh, Spawn. But, you know, it's great that you mentioned uh, practical effects because last night I watched Dragon Slayer, one of the other movies from the 1980s, the co-production by Paramount Pictures and Walt Disney Pictures, believe it or not. And it's all pretty much all practical effects. The dragon is a practical effect and it still looks great. And the nice thing about a movie like Dragon Slayer is that it is not all glitz and glamour. It is a great story where you have the journey and the of, of the, the characters, especially the two main characters, where if, if you don't know the, the story behind Dragon Slayer, there's a dragon that, of course, is 
decimating a kingdom. Holding and he a, needs slain. It, it's holding a, a kingdom hostage. The king has made a deal that every, uh, the spring equinox and the fall equinox, basically, they sacrifice one of the maidens to the dragon. Of course, it's always a female. It's never, never a male. And so the lead female character, her father has dressed her up like a, a boy throughout the whole journey so, to try and protect her. Right. The king has left the princess's name out of the lottery, because why not? Of course he can do that. People can pay money. The wealthy can pay money. Your daughters won't be in there. Just the plebes. The wizard dies right from the start, and you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> so the apprentice, played by Peter McNichol, takes over, and he's going to say, I'm going to go on this journey. I'm going to complete this journey. So from that character, we see this great arc where you have him humble because he's the apprentice to becoming arrogant because he's now the master, thinks he's, he's trapped the dragon forever in the cave, pisses off the dragon to no end, has, realizes that, oh, okay, I'm not all that. The lottery happens. The princess finds out that she's been kept as, as out of the lottery. She throws her name into all of the tiles. So she's going to sacrifice herself. So, you know, the the female lead comes out and comes out to the party in a dress. And everyone's like, wait, what? She's, I thought you were a guy. Oh, you're a girl? Okay. Uh, and, and, and there's no begrudging that they have on the blacksmith, because that's who her father is. Because he says, like, no, I, I, I'm actually applaud you for being smart enough to hide your daughter. I wish I was that smart to hide my daughter. And Ian McDermott, the emperor from Star Wars, plays a clergyman in this. Oh, awesome. And Ian McDermott cannot survive a fantasy film. Uh, <laughs> it's just the way it is. But you see this arc of, of arrogance to humility to... You know, and once you overcome that, then you can overcome the evil. But the brilliant thing of it is that I was watching with my mother and I said, can you guess how they're going to slay this dragon? Can you, do you understand what's happening here? Because the first time you watch it, you don't understand it. The wizard knew he could not make the journey. So he allows himself to be killed so that his ashes can be scooped up, placed in the lake of fire by the dragon, be resurrected, and then slay the dragon. Oh, but the work in this, the work of the dragon alone, the practical setting, the the fact that it was filmed in like places like the Isle of Skye, you know, which is very medieval looking as, and primitive looking at times, mm -hmm. really adds to the richness of this story. Yeah. And the effects, to your point, stand up. Yes, they're a little rough compared to today. But they stand up. They stand up. And it, it's interesting when you look at where, how, how and where some of these things are filmed. Like, the Isle of Sky is great. But a lot of them, I, I, one of the things that I did for this podcast was I watched a fantasy film that I had not watched before. I chose Red Sonja. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it is clear that, it's clear they're just running around the California countryside. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I understand that. It's, it's not the biggest budget film. It's the same thing as um, as a lot of the 90, 90s sci-fi shows. Yeah. Like, it's clear that they're just running around the, the Vancouver countryside. Yeah. Uh, British Columbia somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but 
yeah, you see where they put the money in. You see where Red, Red Sonia was essentially a companion piece to Conan. Now yeah. they couldn't use Conan, but due to copyright issues, they couldn't use Conan in this movie. Schwarzenegger was in it as I think his name was Caldor or something like yeah. that. And he's clearly got got it bad for Red Sonia, and he's but he's just being this arrogant jerk. But it's clear where they they put the budget for this for this film. In Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know Bridget Nelson was a, a star in the 80s. I don't know to, to what level, but... Uh, she's one of those stars that uh, she was up there and then she disappeared. Yeah. Kind of yeah. like Grace Jones. Whoop, boop, down. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, but yeah, ultimately, what they did a really good job with what budget they had. It was fun to watch. I really dug... Um, I mean... I could watch Arnold Schwarzenegger do anything, really. He's fun to watch. He's not the world's greatest actor. He essentially plays Schwarzenegger in every role he does, but he knows how to do it in a way that is entertaining and enjoyable. <laughs> that's what makes some of his movies ridiculous, but that's for another, that's... That's for another podcast. Not, not Talk about fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> But let's but let's talk let's talk about Schwarzenegger in Conan though. Yeah. Conan the Barbarian is a great movie regardless of how you you put it. It really gets the the spirit of Howard's work. It gets the spirit of the comics that Marvel put out. It's just massively great. And I feel like Tulsa Doom is really kind of slept on as an iconic James Earl Jones role. It is. I don't think it's slept on. I think people recognize that Tulsa Doom, the greatest metal band ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, it, I enjoyed it. Schwarzenegger, again, in like... Oh, listen, that that line has become iconic. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, to see them flee before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. That's a great line. It is yeah. a great line from Conan the Barbarian. Schwarzenegger, it, it, again, one of those iconic roles that he has, but it's not as iconic as, say, the Terminator, even though it totally should be. Oh, I think it is, but I think it is in a different circle. You think so? Yeah. I, I, when you think of Schwarzenegger, you think of the Terminator first, yes, but yeah. then you think of Conan second. You really do. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Or you think about those movies you did with Danny DeVito. But anyway... So part of what makes these sword and sandal type of movies so great is the cinematography. Yeah. Is the location, is the production design. And the fact of the matter, it is that idea of of what every story is based on, that whole legend of the, the hero having a fall, almost being defeated, uh, coming back from that. Because, I mean, they have to fight off demons from taking Conan to the afterlife, yeah, you know, and coming back and defeating the evil, you know, which brings us to one of your favorite properties, Masters of the Universe. Yeah, and that's uh, that's another '80s action star who got his own fantasy film, Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, um, it. I love this movie. This movie, I, I, I'm pretty sure I wore out my VHS when <laughs> I was a kid. Now, can you honestly say though it's a great movie? God, God, no. <laughs> But it's fun. But it's it had. Fun. But what is great is it has Frank Langella Skeletor. Oh, Frank Langella Skeletor! That was that was delicious. I mean, it has a good cast. It's got Meg Foster in it. It has um, uh, Courtney Cox in it. A young Courtney Cox. 
uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, if you're a Star Trek fan. Um, like, there's a lot of... The, the principal from from uh, Back to the Future is in it as a cop. <laughs> like, it's, it's a great little cast. And the problem with it is that it doesn't stay in Eternia. It comes to Earth, but whatever. It still looks like a good film. They did a great job with bringing some of the cartoon characters to life. The makeup job they did on Beastman was fantastic. Um, and they brought some, they, they, they created some original characters for the movie, like Blade and the guy with the white hair. I can never remember his name, but anyway. Um, <laughs> all great makeup jobs. All great makeup jobs, though. But the film was a lot of fun. The film looked great. It was, it kind of sucked that we didn't get Orko, but whatever. We got Gwildor instead. But the it does follow that idea of the, the hero has to take a fall. And that, that is kind of the problem with the script is that it's very, it doesn't come along naturally in it, but it still happens. And you get that iconic scene with Dolph Lundgren lifting the sword above his head and saying, I have the power right from the cartoon such a fun film, such a good use of effects. Yeah. And the other thing, I, honestly, I haven't seen it in years. I saw it when it came out, but I haven't seen it in decades. But the only thing I remember is Franklin Gellis-Gelter sort of at the end coming up from the, the lake of fire. And, yeah. and it's almost like, till we meet again. <laughs> I'll be back. So I watch it at least once a year. We're going to have to watch that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I wanted, because you mentioned Masters of the Universe, let's move into some of the animation from there. I mean, oh, yeah. Like, you, we could do a whole podcast of Ralph Bakshi, so I'm going to kind of leave him out of it for now. But I'm going to turn to, uh, like, Disney did some of its best work, in my opinion, in the 80s. Like, The Black Cauldron is a fantastic movie. It is the best animated movie that I think Disney ever made, partly because of one of the artists in it. Don Bluth was one of the chief artists. Now, Don Bluth was an artist, like, in the 70s and 80s with Disney, and he left Disney and did some of his own fantastic work. But when you look at The Black Cauldron, it is what, what we expect out of Disney. You know, like, Disney Imagineering has some of the best special effects ever. And they still hold up today. Watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People as an example. Made like late 50s, early 60s. John Connery's first or second movie. And the special effects, not so much the special effects of the Force perspective of making the Little People, but the special effects of the Banshee at the end, is really frightening and kind of glorious, and it's still kind of neat to see. And they took that into the 70s and 80s. So you sort of see that influence, like I said, with Dragon Slayer. But the Black Cauldron, Disney is always looking for that next innovative part. And that's, I think, what is why Disney is suffering now, because they're not really looking at that innovation. But the Black Cauldron, the animation style in it, the story in it, Googie is hilarious, voiced by John Biner's, I mean, it's like, there's got to be monsters and crunches in here somewhere. It's, it's, it's great stuff. Watching these, these, this story unfold that doesn't involve a Disney princess. It's not involved in a fairy tale. Like, it, they are out to try and defeat this evil that is out there. And probably the best villain 
that Disney ever has. The Horn King, but nobody ever stops and thinks about the Black Cauldron. Well, the Black Cauldron was a box office disaster for And them. it shouldn't have been. And But I think that's why it doesn't get thought of. Yeah, I, when you look at Disney in that era, you've got Tron, you've got the Black Hole, you've got the, the Black Cauldron, you've got um, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Oh, yes. Like, it is the best stuff Disney's ever done. Yeah. Ever. When I first saw Something Wicked This Way Comes, I was about 11 years old and it was on Family Channel. I'm sitting there like, this shouldn't be on Family Channel. This is kind of scary. It's a horror movie. Disney yes. did a yeah. horror movie. Good yeah. for them. And it's a fantastic horror movie if you can ever find it. It's almost like Disney's dirty little secret, the 80s. It's like, we're going to pack everything away over here, except for the Great Mouse Detective. And we're just going to... like. It's. I, I just really wish that people would find those things and understand that's filmmaking. That's Disney at its finest. It's Disney at its best. Don Bluth and Disney parted companies, parted ways. I'm glad that they did that because Don Bluth gave us some of the best animated movies more so in the 90s, but specifically to this conversation, The Secret of Nim. Yeah. It is the most perfect animated movie I have ever seen. The Secret of Nim, um, it's one of those films that I wasn't even aware of. It's actually kind of funny because, uh, like, looking at some of the other movies that Don Bluth has done, I wasn't aware of The Secret of Nim until it came to Canada. But I had seen other films that he had made, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, for example. Right. Um, None of which compares to The Secret of Nim. No, no, no. But I mean, for I mean, for kids' movies, are all like those are fantastic kids' movies. Uh, that's a great lineup of kids' movies. But yeah, Secret of Nim. Um, God, it was scary <laughs> seeing it as a as a youngster. Oh yeah, John Carradine as the owl. Yeah. Oh yeah. And. That that's I feel like that's something that just getting off the topic of fantasy films just for a second, just talking about kids' films for a second. I feel like that's something that is missing in kids' fantasy films is actual frightening things. They're too sanitized now. Yeah. And I I think we're doing this generation's this generation of kids a disservice by not including things that are kind of scary. Oh, Ringo's Speak. Speak. Child expert, speak. (laughs) So, yeah, there are desensitized films, but I know of children that have watched Grand Theft Auto. And I know (laughs) of children that have played uh, Call of Duty. Yeah. And so they're desensitized with the fantasy, but not desensitized with the reality. I'm not not talking about desensitization. I'm talking about understanding the emotion of fear and how that can affect their imagination. Mm-hmm. I I grew up with a love of horror and that part of that honestly comes from the fantasy films I watched as a kid because I liked I realized from a young age I kind of like being scared. But then the, the kids can go see Scream and watch Halloween and Jason and they get their fear from there. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Like, it's it's hard. They don't need to if you put it in an animated film, they'll be like, well, that's animated. That's not real. No. Or CGI or whatever. No, like, but they'll be like, oh, Jason but, could be. But I, I understand Nick's point because it's atmosphere building, right? Yeah. Yes. And it's that sense of danger. Like we have, I mean, Miss Brisby is a mouse 
and she is going to an owl. We know what owls do to mice. It's a fantasy film, but things can be more than one thing at once. And that's that's what I think is kind of getting lost in general storytelling. Like a horror movie is a horror movie. An action film is an action film. A kid's film is a kid's film. Well, you can have an action film with horror elements. You can have a, a horror movie with action elements. You have a kid movie. With yeah, a kid. and it doesn't make it one or the other. Yeah. Uh, but back to The Secret of Nim. I think what makes The Secret of Nim such a great movie is that it's more than just an animated movie. It is a gritty mystery and a drama that's happening to Miss Brisby. And why is it happening to her? Because her child is sick and they have to move because the farmer is going to plow the field and she can't move because her child is sick. And this is the whole sort of thing that compels the movie is and then finding out what happened to her husband because her husband is dead and why he's dead and the whole secret of Nim. But look at the cast. Elizabeth Hartman is Miss Brisby. Then you've got Hermione Badley as the shrew. You've got John Carradine as the owl. You have Peter Strauss as, uh, I think it's Justin or Jason. I can't remember. Will Wheaton as a child is in there voicing Martin. I mean, it's just a fantastic cast that really brings it to life. And the animation is honestly like nothing you had seen before at that point. Even well, Disney had not done that sort of stuff because it's, when you see a Don Bluth film, you know it's yes. Don Bluth animation. The same way that when you see a Chuck Jones 60s animation from the Looney Tunes characters, you know that's Chuck Jones. Um, and that, that's kind of the thing. Ch uh, I'd say Chuck Jones. No, Don Bluth has a very dark sense to his animation. Even in his more kid-friendly fare, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, it it has some very dark parts. In like it. The Rescuers. Yeah. 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 Oh, God, The Rescuers. <laughs> I love the rescuers. It's one of my favorite Disney films. But anyway, um, yeah, like Secret and M's great. A lot of the animated films back then, I just to touch on it very very briefly, there was a claymation film, um, The Adventures of Mark Twain, which was about a couple of kids that just went on a intergalactic adventure with Mark Twain that came out in the 80s. And it was so dark and so scary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like a lot of the films back then. You can see the influence those films have, not just on fantasy films of today, but also on horror films and to a certain extent, action films as well. Mm -hmm. um, or even comedy. I mean, like if you look at, not that it's a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but if you look at Your Highness with Natalie Portman that came out back in 2011, that those movies, that movie very much pays homage to the old sword and sandal film of the 80s. Yeah. And we, you know what, we've just touched on a very few of them. Yeah. You know, um, and and there's just so many more that sort of fall into a crossover. Like Krull is Krull. kind of a crossover, yeah. right? It, it's it's um, it's that medieval sword and sandal, but set in space. You know? You've got yeah, you, like and you've got not not along the same lines, but not exactly a sword and sandal film. The Ewoks movies, the TV Ewoks movies that came out, are definitely made in that same idea they have that same feel to them well as you remember i said years years ago when vhs first was starting to come out and you first had video stores it was the section was science fiction fantasy horror yeah because there wasn't really enough to do it but then in the in the 80s particularly 
fantasy and horror were becoming so big that they would they kind of moved apart mm-hmm. and then you're kind of left dividing it up so i mean we haven't even talked about spielberg's greatest fantasy film i think the goonies yeah <laughs> so the goonies oh my that was that's another vhs i wore i was a kid um i love the goonies i love that cast like the cast works so well together and sloth is just the best what a simple premise i know you take these kids who are from the poorer part of town that everybody puts down because and they call them goonies that's why they're called the goonies and their homes are going to be sold they have to sell the houses for whatever reason and move and they're just so kind of despondent about not being able to be friends anymore and be around each other anymore that they go on this one last adventure to find (laughs) one-eyed Willie's treasure. (laughs) I had a field day if you said booty, but anyway. I I could have said that, but I didn't. But I mean, but even from that, I mean, this is how popular things were then because wrestling was high at that time. This was the MTV generation. They yes. were making little movies out of videos. And you have Cindy Lauper's song, Goonies Are Good Enough, yep. split into two little mini movies that had all of those iconic wrestlers in it. And it's just probably one of the more iconic fantasy films of that era, not directed by Spielberg, but produced by Spielberg. So I've been watching Young Rock. And they actually have an episode where Young Rock goes to the premiere of The Goonies Are Good Enough. And the Iron Sheet character remarks, oh, it's a great music video, but I have no idea what it has to do with The Goonies. <laughs> but anyway. But it, that was uh, that was so much fun. And that's the thing. It's like, I think the great thing about fantasy is that it can either become a really telling tale, a really gripping tale, uh, like some of the... Uh, anime from that era yeah you know it's just fantastic tales that are completely different from north american society altogether um and you just lose yourself in these worlds and it's a great way to spend a couple hours to not worry about everything and you know what i think here in 2023 and moving forward we need more movies like that. To Honestly, just, yes. To just forget about the world for uh, a few minutes, to just move away and have some fun and everybody come together and don't worry about insurrections and uh, you know people inciting, being incited to riot and wars and the housing market. and Oh, my God. I would hate to be a kid now. Here's my thing. As you know, as our listeners have learned, I love horror. The reason I love scary movies is because they're very personal and they give you an idea on what the writer, they give you an idea on the writer's psyche. But with fantasy films, it's a whole other thing. Fantasy films are about having that huge imagination, thinking big and getting that idea onto script, onto screen. Yeah, it's like the Bonnie... just blowing the audience's mind. It's like the Bonnie Tyler song. We we need a hero. Holding out for a hero. That's what's great about the fantasy movies is that you have a hero. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I, it's hard for me to... Like, I know Star Wars is science fiction. The original Star Wars movie. But it wasn't 
done like science fiction. It was done like a sword and sandal movie. Yeah, I've always thought of Star Wars as science fantasy. It is. It's completely fantasy where yeah. you have that hero from a humble beginning moving in to save the day against this oppressive villainy. Yeah. You know, and it's just that's what we need more because storytelling seems to be getting lost. Speaking of storytelling, again, going back to Jim Henson, you had fantasy on television. You had the storyteller. Oh, the storyteller. Amazing stories. I mean, the Twilight Zone reboot series. Like, there was all kinds of... Like, there was nothing that it wasn't permeating in. And I just... I miss that kind of era. I It yeah. was so simple that I could, I could hide away from bullies. I could hide away from the world on the weekend and just watch these things. To go see it on the big screen at the Capitol Theater to watch it on television, to be able to rent... I don't even remember what those called, those great big laser disc things. You, used to, you just had to go and, and rent the machine, and you got three movies for renting the machine. And you put it in, and it ran half the movie. Then you had to put in the case, pull it out, turn it over, put in the other half of the movie. But it was so much fun. I mean, I... You got that, and I mean, here I am spending weekend watching The Secret of Nim, watching Supergirl. What you know? It's just I miss those days, and I I don't think you guys even have anything that can compare to that. Honestly, not really, because everything is just a giant CGI mess now. I mean, I would think if it was done with practical effects, Avatar would be that. But the fact of the matter is, is Avatar just looks fake. I uh, yeah. Um. But it's getting to a point where I don't think people can really appreciate it in the same level. They seem to be settling for banality. Now, superheroes have become their own genre. At the time, Superman, Supergirl, anything that came out in the 80s, Batman, that was fantasy. It was before the, the Marvel, MCU, and DCU, and all that kind of stuff. So that they fell into the fantasy categories. So the storytelling was much better. It was much richer. You had to introduce yourself to the hero. You had to go on the hero's quest with them. You had to watch them be defeated, and then you have to watch them save the day. But the sacrifice of it, yeah. specifically when you think about Superman the movie, Christopher Reeve's Superman, he loses his planet. He comes down here as an infant. He is raised by the, the Kents. We all know that story. But in the movie... You see Superman do these wonderful things. He's introducing himself to the world. He saves Lois Lane from falling from the helicopter. Don't worry, miss. I've got you. You've got me. Who's got you? You know, and, and it's wonderful to watch because even in that movie, we see Lex Luthor defeat him with the kryptonite necklace. And that's kind of the thing. These movies were good at building stakes. Yeah. There were, there were high stakes in these movies, and you didn't know what was going to happen. But the problem with movies nowadays, specifically with Marvel films, the stakes aren't there. Yeah. Like, I'm two movies that just popped into my head. One is um, Shang-Chi, and the other is Doctor, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. We know that they're going to win. There's no stakes here. Yeah, at one point, they, at one point they released those, the evil dragon in Shang-Chi. We know he's going to defeat it. At one point, uh, Wanda gets a hold of America Chavez to sacrifice her. We know Doctor Strange is going to defeat her. There's no stakes. Show us something yes, where the hero because fails. In that, in that Superman the movie, 
Christopher Reeve's Superman is faced with a dilemma. He's in a no-win situation. He needs to get that kryptonite off of him. Who's going to get that kryptonite off of him? Miss Tessmacher. Only she can do it because she's the only one left there. She's angry at Lex because he sent these two missiles to destroy it. And her mother lives in one of these areas. Mm -hmm. So her deal with Superman is, I'll get that necklace off of you, but you save my mother first. And he does that. And what's the consequence of that? Lois dies. Lois Lane actually dies. And you see the trauma that he goes through saving everybody else, yet sacrificing his desire. Yeah. So he it's his it's not without stakes. It's not without sacrifice. And then of course, yay, yeah, he yeah. does the mm -hmm. time turning, which is ridiculous, but <laughs> whatever. It works. But that that's what I mean. There is real stakes at it. And when you don't have those real stakes, you don't get as invested in that journey. And that's the thing is like, yeah, exactly. When you don't have the stakes, there's no emotional connection there with the main character. It's just flashy, flashy, bang, bang. Yay! And that's what makes the Empire Strikes Back so fantastic. They lose! Yeah, that is not, like, Empire Strikes Back, great film. It's not a fun movie because, oh my God, they lose. Yeah. And you don't know what's happened to Han at the end of that movie. Is he alive? Is he dead? We don't really know. Yeah. Is... Um, is the Empire going to be able to rebound from their loss in Hoth? We don't really know. We see some ships at the end, but we don't know how big the Alliance is at that point. You know, and that's kind of like, let's sort of go full circle here as we wrap things up. That brings us back to Scream. The reason that Scream fails so much is because you don't have that good versus evil. Because it's just, you have all of these different gimmicky... Uh, Ghost faces. Yeah. You know? Everybody has everybody has their reason to be a ghost face. And a lot of times they're not compelling reasons. No, but at the same time, it's like, oh, it's revenge because you hurt whatever. But, you know, but that's what I mean. Like, the, I don't see the growth within these heroes. Whereas if you look at the original Halloween, you have that good girl. Mm -hmm. That good girl keeps everything safe. She's our way into it. The only reason that Lori was in any danger is because she was concerned about her friends, because her friends were doing awful things, and she went over there to find out what was going on. Otherwise, Michael never would have... Uh, I, I don't think he would have come over there, because I don't think he knew where she was, but he was quite contempt in the Wallace's house. But you have that whole idea of that journey of good versus evil. You've got the good girl. She's an innocent girl. The only reason she has to suffer is because she she did a hit a pot, which, you know, back at the, the day was, but, you know, you have that compelling hero in Samuel Loomis. You have the fact that Michael Myers is evil personified. You have all of those things in place where she sacrifices everything. She almost loses. She is brought down to... Uh, bare bones, but she knows she has to go on to protect the children. And even then, she almost loses it until Loomis comes in and shoots Michael. And it's pulse-pounding, and it's one of AFI's top 100 most pulse-pounding moments. Sorry, I do need to go back to Scream 6 for a second, because you just made me realize something. The killer's plan in Scream 6 was absolute crap. Because at one point... Sam says to Tara, 
we're getting out of here. And Tara gives pushback on that. What if, if Tara had not given pushback on that, if Tara had said, yeah, we do need to get out of here, the killer's plan would have been completely shot. Yes. And, Done. And you know what? That That's the whole thing about these movies. It's the hero and the villain. It's that idea of this hero coming from an unlikely source, an unlikely place, being thrust into a dilemma, a, a, a moment an emergency, whatever you want to call it, not of their choosing, and rising up and finding the bravery to go on and to succeed and to defeat the evil or the overlord or whatever. And when you don't have that compelling a movie, the movie suffers. The story suffers. You need to get back to good story writing. And if you yeah. can find it, we didn't touch on it, but if you can find it, I mentioned about television. If you can find Jim Henson's The Storyteller, great fantasy series, lasted one season. That's all the time we have for this episode of Area 51 and a Half. Nick, reminder, aliens, how they can get a hold of us. Well, aliens, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on TikTok, Clapper, and Twitter, all by following at the Area 51H, as well as by searching Area 51 and a Half on Facebook. Now, as we were just discussing fantasy films, I do want to let everyone know that we will be seeing the new Dungeons & Dragons movie, and we'll give our thoughts on that in the next podcast. Thank you for joining us on our landing pad, aliens. For Ren, Nick, and Spooky Uncle John, we're signing off from Area 51 and a Half.